Welcome to the Grow Kinder podcast, where thought leaders in education explore how social emotional learning can help us navigate society's most pressing challenges and create a kinder, more compassionate world. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Tia Kim. Today we're talking about digital media and the effect it has on our children. Vicki Rideout has been studying this topic for over two decades, and she just released some new research called Coping with COVID-19, how young people use digital media to manage their mental health. What it was was a nationally representative survey of more than 1,500 teens and young adults in the U.S., and it was conducted last fall during the height of the coronavirus from September to November 2020. The research was sponsored by Common Sense Media, Hope Lab, and the California Healthcare Foundation, and co-authored with Susanna Fox. And it includes some troubling findings on the rise of depression among young people during COVID. Depression among young people is up substantially, and that's something that a lot of people, a lot of other studies have found. We confirmed that in this study. We conducted a first wave of this survey in 2018. Sadly, 25% of all of our respondents who were ages 14 to 22 had moderate to severe depression. And this time around, that was up to 38%. We know during COVID, kids have been more reliant than ever on social media. And Vicky's studies confirm this too. So it may be tempting to jump to conclusions here and point the finger at social media use for this spike in depression. But Vicky's findings suggest that it may not be so straightforward. Social media has played a really important role in keeping young people informed and connected and less depressed <laughs> during COVID-19. The report also uncovered a surprising trend in how young people are using digital media. Young people are really making extensive use of a variety of digital health tools, whether that's you know looking for people with their same conditions online, connecting to providers, using apps to try to manage their well-being, and so on. Today on Go Kinder, I sit down with Vicki to dive deeper into her research to explore the true nature of the connection between social media use and depression in our young people. You know, what I really appreciate about the, the survey and the study is that it really takes a deeper stance and just um, how much has it gone up over the years? I think um, asking those deeper dive questions is really interesting. And, you know, I learned a lot through reading it. So, you know, I guess the question I have for you is what really motivated um, this study and the questions that you were looking into? A lot of adults have been really concerned about the impact of digital technology and social media in particular on young people's well-being. There are some folks who believe that digital devices and social media are part of the cause of depression among young people. And you can think of a lot of reasons why that might be the case, right? That um, young people are looking at posts on social media and having this reaction of compare and despair that gets talked about, or perhaps there's online bullying and so on. There are other uh, experts who say there's no causal link between social media and depression, and we're just sort of distracting ourselves from some of the more serious issues in young people's lives when we try to oversimplify it to say, oh, just 
you know, limit their smartphone use to two hours a day and we'll be addressing the problem of depression and anxiety among youth. So that was the reason that we wanted to explore this issue from maybe a little bit of a different perspective, and that is to bring in the voices of young people themselves and to take a deeper look at how they're using social media and other digital resources during times of depression and how they think it makes them feel. Yeah, that was a really key takeaway I took um, from reading the study as well. And I, I, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into some of those findings in a little bit here. But before we do that, you know, you, I don't think maybe not all our listeners know that you've been doing this kind of research for a really long time. What do you think are the biggest changes over time? I started doing this research in 1999. So the changes have been humongous. I mean, what a time in the world's history to be a media researcher. So I think what's happened is obviously digital media and social media in particular, I think, play a huge role in all of our lives these days. But it can be easy to forget that they're both really pretty recent phenomenon. It was just 15 years ago that the very first social media platforms were developed. And I'm talking about MySpace. It's not even around anymore. And even more recently than that, that we began to have mobile phones. So, you know, all of these have really revolutionized children's lives. Um, it means they can be connected at any time, uh, anywhere they are, to anyone and anything. Just to give you an idea of how social media has changed, like from when I first started studying social media in 2012 up to now, in 2012, 34% of teens had their own cell phone. Today, two-thirds of 12-year-olds have their own phone. In 2012, 40% of teens checked their social media sites more than once a day. Today, more than 90% do. 40% are on it at least every hour. And 16% say they're on social media almost constantly. So those are some of the really big changes that I've seen over time. So um, the focus of your uh, current study is really looking at depression in youth. Have you noticed any trends um, related around depression and how it relates to kids and social media use? One thing that's really interesting is when you ask young people themselves, when you're feeling depressed, how does using social media generally make you feel? They are far more likely to say that it makes them feel better rather than worse. Um, they are using social media as a way to connect with other kids their age who might be going through similar experiences that they are. They use it as a way to get advice. They use it as a way to get inspiration. They use it as a way for humor um, to you know, cheer themselves up. So that's something that we found. We first surveyed on that particular question in 2018. This time around, when we surveyed it in 2020, the proportion of young people who say using social media when they feel depressed generally makes them feel better had more than doubled. And the proportion who said it usually makes them feel worse had stayed flat. So we are seeing this interesting change where when you talk to young people themselves, today they are more likely to say social media has a positive impact on them than a negative one. This is one of the pieces of Vicky's research that has stuck with me the most. If kids are telling us that social media makes them feel better, who are we to tell them that it's actually harmful? Of course, as with all self-reported data, we have to be careful about taking them at face value. 
but we should be equally careful about disregarding them completely in favor of our own opinions about what's good for them. First and foremost, it's just important to recognize that we need to listen to young people about how they are using digital tools for their own mental well-being. I think as adults, we sometimes just assume that social media is this rat's nest out there of, of negativity, and certainly there is a lot of negative out there, but we need to understand how each young person is choosing to use social media. We found so many young people were saying social media is really important to them for getting support and advice or for being able to express themselves creatively and that that's something that's really important to them when they're not feeling well or to be able to look for inspiration from others. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, at Committee for Children, we obviously really focus on social emotional learning and um, most of our programming is school-based interventions, right? And we often talk about how teaching social-emotional learning, it's there's a real social aspect to it, right? That in a lot of ways that it has to be done in person, but, you know, just reading, you know, your findings, it kind of made me think a little bit about how can we better perhaps utilize digital tools to help support that instruction, um, particularly because so many um, youth seem to really utilize it um, as a support mechanism. It's also really encouraging um, and perhaps a sign of success in social emotional learning education that so many young people are using social media to lift one another up. I mean, I think the general impression sort of in the popular media is sort of like mean girl type of stuff going on. And really, we do not see a lot of that. We see young people saying, gosh, I looked at my, you know, I'm depressed, but I looked at my friends who are who are doing uh, well, and it makes me feel so happy for them. Or I, I met somebody else who's... Um, going through similar things that I'm going through. Maybe they lost a parent to COVID and they gave me suggestions um, for how I can cope with my situation. A 16-year-old girl said to me, uh, sometimes I get depressed or anxious about certain things that I deal with. And I wanted to know if other teens felt the same way that I do. I found others who sometimes feel like I do and what they do to overcome it. Or, um, a 14-year-old non-binary person looking online to try to connect with others who are going through the same things that they were. And so I do think it's it's really powerful to understand how eager young people are to lift one another up and support one another, whether it's online or face-to-face. You mentioned LGBTQ youth. So are there any other, you know, particular kind of subgroup differences you found in your most recent study? Yes, huge differences. About 16% of the respondents in our survey did identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, etc. And the first thing I have to say is that it, it is just unspeakably sad how many of them also report symptoms of moderate to severe depression. It's 65%. That is more than twice the rate of non-LGBTQ youth. Yeah, that's really high. It's awful. And so that's number one. Um, the other thing that we saw as a big difference is they are 
way more likely to use digital health resources for both physical and mental health purposes. And they're way more likely to say social media is really important to them as well. Yeah, so, you know, Committee for Children has a bullying prevention program, and within the programming, and it's mainly for um, elementary school kids, but in the program, we talk a lot about being a good upstander, right? So I'm just thinking in terms, and I don't know if you've had research on this or have any findings on this, but how have you seen youth being good upstanders and particularly using the digital tools to enable them to, to do that? For a little kid, for an elementary school kid, it might look something like this. They're playing a game online and somebody is killing a new kid, um, you know, virtually, um, you know, every time the kid tries to play. So they decide they're going to reach out to that kid and say, here, come with me and I'll get you through these first couple of stages of this game. Or, you know what, you're, you're a newbie, don't worry about it, I was a newbie too, I've learned how to play. Um, I can give you some virtual coinage to buy things for, for this game. And we had a lot of kids telling us about that. I mean, I'm just so touched at how brave and kind so many little kids are in the surveys I've done with them. And so many tweens and teens are as well. We've heard a lot so far about all the ways that digital media can be a force for good in the lives of young people, when used the right way. But the fact remains that for some, the compare and despair phenomenon is very real. Hate speech is rampant in some corners of the internet. And when young people are reaching out to peers for health information instead of trusted sources, misinformation can spread like wildfire. So it's important to remember that even where some kids feel supported by social media, the exact same tools can have the opposite effect on others. We need to be aware that young people are not a monolith. You know, they don't all respond to the content that's available online in the same way. So every parent, every counselor, every therapist needs to be aware of how the young person who they are dealing with responds. For those who are experiencing the highest levels of depression, severe depression, Social media has an outsized influence. It can be even more important to them than it is to others for feeling less alone. Or they can be the ones who do succumb the most to compare and despair. And for some young people who use social media when they're feeling depressed and say, it makes me feel worse when I'm depressed, for there are some who say that, some of those young people say, so therefore I don't use it when I'm depressed. Like they know enough and have the ability to moderate their own social media use in those conditions. Others don't. They say, it makes me feel bad and I just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and I can't stop. So I think what's critical is for us to understand how those we are working with use social media and what their unique needs are. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So you mentioned it briefly about how there may be facts out there on social media or other digital platforms that might not actually be factual or true. And I appreciate the fact that you find that a lot of young people turn to social media and other digital tools 
to keep informed and connected. But, you know, being in the field of social emotional learning and one of the competencies we really think about teaching is making good decisions, right, and responsible decision making. How do we help youth navigate kind of truth and facts versus opinion, particularly because it seems like they are reaching out to digital tools to learn a lot about that. And, you know, another way to think about it is how do we, you know, teach them to be really good consumers of information. Mm, how do we teach any of us? How do we become good yes, consumers exactly. of information? <laughs> All of these issues are really, you know, germane to everybody and not just to young people. But I think one of the things we wanted to make clear with this survey is that it's not just adults who are looking to the internet for information on COVID or vaccines or health topics in general. Young people are encountering a whole plethora of health challenges, and the internet is where they turn first. So how do we make sure they know the difference between truth and opinion? We have to, I guess, make sure that as adults and as health providers, that we are providing accurate, sourced information that is age appropriate and that is easy for young people to find. And we are not always doing that. So that's number one. Number two, of course, media literacy is incredibly important today more than ever. And even beyond media literacy, there's what I like to call as digital health literacy, right? There's media literacy, there's health literacy, and then there's digital health literacy. This is another data point that really stuck out to me. It stated that exposure to hate speech on social media is up substantially. So, you know, why do you think that is? And in particular, how do you think that is affecting youth's mental health. What we found in the survey is that about one in four teens and young adults say they often encounter racist content, sexist content, homophobic content on social media. So it's quite a lot. And that is up a lot from two years ago, more than, more than doubled in some cases. And of course, the young people who are the targets of that particular hate speech are, are way more likely to be exposed to it too. So LGBTQ youth, um, more, than, more than a fourth of them who are often encountering homophobic content online. So the internet for them is both a way to connect with people who are similar to them and far away, and it's a way to connect with all the hate that's out there too. So it was we were concerned that we might find an increase in exposure to hate speech online, and we did. Vicky's research tells us that social media can be dangerous in all those ways that we've always feared it is, but it can also be supportive and uplifting. Then what do we take from all of this? To get that, the nuance and the complexity and the depth of how young people use social media out there into the public domain, I think is really important. Interestingly, when it comes to social media and youth, I think in some ways our studies need to get smaller. What some people in the field are talking about now is an N of one, which as a researcher, you'll know what that means. The N is the sample size. So the N for my survey was like 1500, right? But in truth, what we're uncovering through this research is that there's a huge disparity in how each young person uses social media and how they respond to social media. And so there may be a young person who's suffering from depression for whom social media has a devastatingly bad impact. And there may be 
other young people for whom social media helps keep them from falling into deeper depression, or if they do, helps lift them, helps them lift themselves out of it. And so I think we need to get down to that individual level and, and start looking at the ends of one. Talking to you reminds me, because I'm a, I think I said earlier, I'm a parent of mm. a 13-year-old, and I would say I'm pretty uh, strict and conservative when it comes to digital media use with him. I think I've loosened up my reins as he's gotten older, but, you know, like he doesn't have social media accounts. But just again, hearing you talk and reading your report, it's maybe kind of opened my eyes a, a little bit. And I think that is important because I think you're right. Um, and, you know, I'm trained as a psychologist and we've always learned that there are really big individual variations and that there are environmental factors and heredity and genetic factors that kind of really combine to make each person unique. And so I think that's a really great point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was curious about your your son. So does he engage in online gaming a lot? Yes, he does online gaming. And I was really, he was probably one of the last of his <laughs> friends for us to kind of allow that to happen where my husband finally said, this is just what they do and this is how they socially interact. Right. So for us to not allow him to do that, he's missing out on a huge social network mm -hmm. that happens. And so that made sense to me. You know, sometimes I'm a researcher and I know these things, but then there's the parent in me that <laughs> sometimes those two things don't really coincide. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting for me to see the difference in boys and girls. Oh yeah, definitely. We didn't get into that, but I think there definitely are differences. Yeah, I mean, too, yeah. and you say he doesn't really use social media, but is online gaming social media because yeah, they're exactly. chatting. And when you talk about hate speech, that's one of yes. the top places that you hear it. Definitely. And um, so that's something for you to talk to him about and, and be aware of. But it's also been really key during COVID. Online gaming has been a really important way for people to maintain their, their social connections. Social connections, yep, yeah. definitely. So, you know, just to wrap up, where do you think we're heading in terms of teens and their digital media use? Any indication of what you think the, the next trend might be or the next kind of aha data point? Number one, I think young people are really eager to get back to in-person socialization. So I think there was a lot of concern by some adults in the world about like, you know, they've been, they forgot how to socialize and they're going to just want to be online only now and they're not going to be able to get back together in person. And they're ready to get back together in person. They value it. The um, pandemic and the lockdowns associated with it have caused them to cherish it even more and value it even more. So that's one thing. The other is, I mean, young people just love digital media and in a way, what's not to love, right? That you can talk to somebody on the phone and see them at the same time, that a whole group of you can hang out together if you can't be together in person, and you can watch a movie together at the same time online, or you can play a game. And so I think to me, the biggest thing I'm seeing is just the creativity, is young people using social media to share their creativity with others, whether it's artwork, poems, writing stories together, learning how to cook, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that, and and connecting with other people across the country who maybe have their same particular interest and or getting inspiration from other people's creativity. So I think creativity is kind of where it's at. But other than that, I don't know. So that's why I go into the next study with an <laughs> open mind, and I will try to objectively find out what the next big thing is. I love the point that you actually made, though, in closing that um, 
youth really do still value in-person interactions and connection. And so I think that sometimes we get those two things confused. Just because they like to be on digital media doesn't mean that they never want to see people again. It's just a, a medium or a mechanism in which they kind of view the world and, and utilize the world, but it doesn't mean that they don't want to have any interaction. And I think that's just a really important point. Absolutely, absolutely. Vicki talked earlier about wanting to shrink her study sample sizes down to an N of one to really examine the individual differences in how young people use and react to digital media. When I think about these issues, my N of one is my 13-year-old son. And I'm guessing that if you're listening to this podcast, you might have an N of one in your life who you are thinking about right now too. Every child experiences the world differently. And this research can certainly help us frame how we think about these issues. But what it really shows us is that it's up to all of us as parents and educators to look at the kids in our own lives and really take the time to figure out what's right for them. And here at Committee for Children, we'll keep working on providing you the tools and the resources to help you do that. I'm your host, Tia Kim. Thanks for listening to the Grow Kinder podcast. If you learned something from this episode, consider sharing the link with a friend or colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. Or give us a rating or review in your favorite podcast service like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. These little things really do help us grow and reach new audiences and further our mission of creating a kinder and more compassionate world. Thank you.